today's episode of the Shut and Sit Down podcast, I'm talking to Andrew Navarro, previously of Fantasy Flight Games, then of Chip Theory, and now doing their very own thing, Earthborn Games, a brand new exciting thing which is really focusing on the idea of making exciting games, but with sustainability being at the core of their production. And on today's podcast, we're going to be talking to Andrew about some of his history, some of his time at FFG, moving on from FFG, a bit of stuff to do with the things at Chip Theory, and then also excitingly talking about what comes next, how sustainability becomes a part of that, and hopefully how we can look at sustainability across the whole industry, because it's an issue that we take pretty seriously these days. Andrew, thank you so much for coming along and having a chat. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Matt. This is awesome. So we have had quite lengthy chats a couple of times when I came to FFG to do the Twilight Imperium sort of big documentary thing, which ended up sprawling out of my hands and being a terrifying creature. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like the game itself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I still, I have very, very clear memories of sitting and playing a a kind of half game of TI with you and some other folks uh, in a meeting room whilst having some pizza. And it was the first time I'd ever played the game. So it's, it's weird that actually I did the majority of the work on the interviews for that without actually ever having played TI and I was I was pretty shocked as I told you at the time I think that to discover that actually it wasn't that complicated there's a lot to remember right. but really it's it's a pretty simple dumb thing about making threats and most of them being hollow you started at FFG you were there for 15 years almost today right uh yes just a little bit over and you started out there after a brief dalance doing uh, some customer support you applied for a graphic design position and then over in 2010, started to grow up through the industry within FFG, taking on more and more responsibility. But really, there was that crucial period, you know, hovering around from 2006 to 2010, where you were directly hands-on with the graphic design and then overseeing Mm. some of the graphic design. And I think it's safe to say at that point that, you know, FFG was so far ahead of the industry in terms of the quality of what was being physically made and put out there. And it's definitely actually, for me personally, a lot of those games... Um, were the things that got me into the industry and got me into doing what is now Shut Up and Sit Down. Let me know how a little bit about what it was like starting at FFG and what the company was like back in 2004. Oh, geez. Yeah, so uh, when I started, like you mentioned, I I got in uh, doing customer service. So it was just, I I was just kind of just looking for a job. And and my wife, uh, I had had already um, submitted a uh, uh, artist portfolio to FFG uh, to, to a guy who was working there named Rob Vaughn, who did a bunch of role-playing games at the time. And uh, I remember talking to him at, at Gen Con that year as I was walking around showing my par- portfolio to, to different people. And uh, he politely uh, told me no in not so many words. <laughs> uh, but they were local to to, uh, to my wife and I. We were living in Minneapolis. And um, and she just said, yeah, you should just check to see if they're hiring. So I so I hopped on and and uh, looked on their website, and they were they were hiring for a customer service position. So I so I got in doing that. So I, I didn't really know FFG like very much. I, I'd seen the logo a lot in in game stores because it was kind of all over the place. Especially that that was kind of near the end of the D twenty boom, where there were all those uh, just you know open game license D twenty supplements. Didn't really register until I um, started working there. Just how many games. Uh, ffg had published yeah um, especially like in the local game store it was crazy and uh they all had a very like you mentioned they all had a very specific look to them they all uh they're all they all looked very exciting 
with a high level of a uh, lot, a lot of graphics, a lot of like uh, overwrought uh, text and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, so when I when I first got there, I think I was the seventh, seventeenth person on staff at that time. Um, not to say the seventeenth like employee ever. Like they've they've gone through plenty of people before I got there, but uh, really small and kind of at the very beginning of the first of many growth steps. So like what, after I came on, uh, like Corey Konetska joined within that year as well. And, uh, that, and then we kind of like fleshed out a graphic design department. So like we really didn't, it was really just a couple of guys and one other person who was doing like the marketing graphic design to like the website and the catalog and stuff. So, uh, when I got on there being doing graphic design, it was like the third, the third guy, uh, <laughs> that just needed to be there to, to help them. So yeah, when I when I started, it was it was very small. I remember like uh, getting that graphic design job, and just by like the skin of my teeth, I didn't even have a graphic design portfolio when I applied. I had to like make it over a weekend. Yeah, I, I read um, about this. So you you built a mock box for a fake game, which, yeah. And I needed to clarify this for me because it's vaguely upsetting. You said in, <laughs> in, a, in either an interview or a written piece that you glued this on the outside of your copy of War of the Ring. What kind of yeah. glue are we talking about here? Did, did, did the <laughs> Like, did you permanently damage a copy of War of the Ring? I did, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, at, at the time, it wasn't quite the uh, the chase item that it is now. Uh, I suppose I not, no. Thought, thought differently of it if I did it today. Um, but it has character, you know, now. It's got like, little little tears and little glue left over on it. So, uh, and um, I, I've, you know, the game still works just fine. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, think, <laughs> I think there's just something quite nice. In the same way that people yeah. often get frustrated with us for... The fact that we we have cups of tea and drinks dangerously close to board game components in a way that lots of people who play board games find quite upsetting. So yeah, I did that over a weekend. You know, got the job, and then um, shortly after that, like everyone left on vacation. Um, so then I was just kind of left there by myself, working on the graph design for uh, the the Midnight D and D Third Edition Open Gaming License Second Edition Core Book, uh, which was like my first project, and trying to parse those files from the first edition and figure out how to use uh freehand macromedia freehand if anyone out there remembers what that is that program's a nightmare um, <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore thank god but trying to figure that out and just like thinking to myself like how did i i don't even know what i'm doing like this is <laughs> like i how did i get this job though like anyway it was uh it was a moment where i i definitely um it all kind of started to sink in and i just realized i had to figure it out um or uh you know leave i guess i don't know but um yeah but uh yeah from that point forward just um experimenting trying learning things like getting into getting into freehand the best i could getting into photoshop and learning from the other graph designers there and uh, just building building my skills and working in that for a long time. And that was really fun. It, you'd work pretty much like hand in hand with all of the designers because it was such a small I bet, yeah. team. I mean, 17 um, people, that's like what kind of a room like is that a couple of rooms a room yeah it's a, it was you know, it's a tiny little like really dingy um office uh i remember the first time i was in there i was like wow this place is <laughs> this place is not awesome <laughs> uh, yeah i think i've seen um, some of the photos of this era actually when we were going through the ti stuff and it was just yeah. a bunch of excitable people in what looks like a, a cave full of computers <laughs> yeah totally uh and we all had to like chip in cleaning the bathroom and like mopping the floors at the end of the week stuff like that um but 
yeah, it was really fun. It was like Kevin Wilson was working there at that time. I worked a lot with Kevin Wilson um, on his games. Uh, and um, when when a game designer were to work on something, they'd also like be doing the art direction and handling all the play testing. And yeah, like what are what are what now amounts to many people's jobs yeah. uh, spread out across multiple departments was all being handled by just a couple of people. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it was really it was uh it was really fun. I mean, and we worked really quickly. You know, we we turned games around in just a few months, like um like from start to finish. It was uh it was cool. Um spent I got to know uh, Eric Lang a bit at that time. Like he's he he worked a lot, you know, doing like freelance stuff for Refugee and was was in there a lot working on, you know, the Game of Thrones CCG and and other designs and it was cool. And then and then obviously, you know, as the years went on, we 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 grew more and more in little spurts as as the company as the company grew and the licenses came in and it's one of those things where for me you know I really I I got into board games <clears throat> not long before the creation of Shut Up and Sit Down obviously I wasn't a part of the site when the site began the site began actually ten years ago this year we'll hopefully do something to celebrate it if we can get around to it because we're really bad and unorganized um, but I got involved maybe I don't know a year and a half after the site started which is kind of amusing because i still think of myself as the new guy even though it's been about eight and a half years of me doing it versus a year and a half of not (laughs) but i yeah i was a video gamer primarily and i worked in that industry for a long time and then i discovered and cosmic encounter was the game that really got me into board games and made me think what is this like what am i missing here what else is there and actually for a long time after that just because so much of the production quality on lots of other things was just shonky and there wasn't that kind of zest and you know a lot of the kind of as you say, the excitingness, the promise of excitement in other things that, you know, don't get me wrong. I then grew up and, and moved on to love. You know, the first Euro game I played was Russian Railroads and I hated it because it melted my brain during the middle of a heat wave. <laughs> now, I mean, obviously that game is great. I've played it since and it's like, oh, cubes and money. I'm in. <laughs> but for many years, for the first like couple of years of me playing stuff, for me, almost FFG was almost like the seal of quality on a box. It meant like, oh, this yeah. is going to be good. Um, and it was really exciting. And actually, the first time I then got to come to FFG uh, was really, you know, f- even though it was many years after. And by this point, I've been working on the site for a while. I've been reviewing all sorts of games from you folks um, and covering stuff. But it was still really exciting to be going there to this company that I had in my mind as being like, oh, that's, a, that's the thing. And by this point, the office was pretty big. Um, there must yeah. have been, I don't know, enough to have at least 100 people plus in there. Although I think the year we went, the first time, there wasn't that many people there because people were somewhere else and it kind of felt slightly empty. But it it was this huge thing. It was a huge company. I think the thing that struck me most is the fact that even at that point, before things really, really completely blew up, Fantasy Flight Games was already just so much bigger as a game studio in the industry than than possibly anyone else. Yeah. No, I think at that time... um... And then, you know, for the years that followed, uh, like I've been told by uh, other people at the company that the, you know, the creative team, the the studio portion was like the largest, like dedicated, like board game company, like in the in the world. Um, and I, I have no way of like uh, verifying <laughs> the, the factualness of that statement, but uh, we, we certainly were big and like really diverse, you know, and I like for me, like the thing that that FFG always meant was was it FFG could do anything. You know, you never knew what you were gonna get out of FFG. Like it, it's not like oh, it's always board games, it's always car games, it's always miniatures games. It's always like it's every conceivable 
genre. Um, and I think that was, uh, in my mind, really the strength of it as a publisher is that um, it could do anything. But like you said, like what it came to symbolize, I, what we tried to make it symbolize was like ingenuity, quality, care, high production value, you know, all those, all those things that you come to expect from an FFG product. Um, and it was really cool to, and uh, to be to be a part of it. Um, really proud to be a part of it. It was awesome. I mean, I think around 2014, 2015, that was possibly the boom of the X-Wing miniatures game. Yeah. And again, that was a really good example, I think, of of the company having ramped up and, and uh, stepped up in terms of their market presence, but still at this pace of creating things that were just of a phenomenally high quality. You know, that was a really fun game um, mm -hmm. uh, that I loved. And I had a lot of fun playing it with people who I usually would really struggle to get to play that kind of thing just because yeah. they were massive Star Wars nerds and the ships were awesome. You know, the, the yeah. detail of them, the quality of them was just superb. You know, they, they looked mm -hmm. better than most toys in that space did. Obviously, you know, must have been quite different working at that point for a company of that scale in terms of, I know from my dealings, you know, trying to sit down as a company is maybe six, seven people, maybe five, mm -hmm. six. Mm -hmm. I, I can't exactly remember. Not many. And even at that stage, scaling up from three to five or six, you have to start having meetings and you, it's not as simple as just turning around <laughs> and tapping someone on the shoulder digitally, you know, yeah. um, just sending one person an email back and forth. It's very easy for people to fall out of the loop on stuff. It's very easy for people to end up working on things that they shouldn't have been working on because someone else was doing it or we weren't doing it anymore. And so much process has to step into things that actually sometimes things just get complicated and don't feel the same anymore. Right, right. Yeah, and that was definitely a gradual, that was a gradual process for sure. From that, that 2010 is when I think, well, I always think of like when we started to really grow up in that way. Uh, because up until that point, every product that we'd make before it would go to the printer, we'd print out everything on our plotter, which are like these, you know, just like big, like big format printers where you just have like these big spools of paper um, where you can print out everything at size. And whoever was the producer on that project and producer was like a role that was created a few years earlier to try to like have ownership of a particular of a particular project and someone who uh, could like oversee it and also get in trouble if it goes poorly. Um, <laughs> but uh, they would uh, essentially print everything out and just put it on a table in, in Christian's office. And he'd have to like, personally review everything and then then it would go out and uh it was getting to the point where you know uh he they would just sit there for weeks and weeks uh and just didn't have the time um and then uh he eventually like came to this realization like ah, i i can't do this i need to form like a squad of people to review this stuff and i'll be there when i can but otherwise i'll just need to trust them um, and that was a that was a huge step, I think, in the uh, in the development of the company. But I think from that point forward, like also is kind of like when I became the uh, when when I became the art director, mm -hmm. and part of me becoming the art director was us uh, creating a database that we could use to commission artwork. Which you know at that time we had you know working with hundreds of artists on yeah multiple projects that required you know hundreds of art pieces per project and it's a lot of emails uh, it's a lot of yeah, emails it's a lot, it's a lot to try to do on a spreadsheet right so yeah. I, that so so we started with this with this uh with this database that again christian made himself um, 
he's big into everything into into companies doing their own thing and like yeah. doing yeah, 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 yeah. themselves and i think that you know it's the, that goes to him too so like so that database when he made it to help you know, help the art department keep things under control that then eventually branched into like a larger like project database that then was used you know for project management uh, for the company, like up until when I left, I'm not sure if they're still using it, but, um, but yeah, like at that point, you're right. Like that's when all that process needs to come in. There's so mm -hmm. many more people involved. You have so many projects on multiple tracks. You need to be able to like stagger, uh, projects to make sure that certain departments come free at the right times. And, um, it was a, yeah, work, work in progress for like a decade uh, to get it working well. But I could still tell right up, you know, to the, in the last time I came, um, well, not the last time, I, but before the last time I came to do the finish the TI thing, right up until about, you know, 2016, it was still fascinatingly this company that had grown and grown and had tremendous successes. And it was very clear to me, um, not that far into interviewing people for the Twilight Imperium 4 documentary, which if you've not ever checked it out, Gonna plug it. I might as well plug it. It's really good. Yeah. It's got Andrew saying some interesting stuff. I was very happy. It was. I'm not gonna do one of those again because it's really hard. Um, and trying to not have any voiceover in it of my own now makes me realize that whenever you see a documentary and they fill it with voiceover, I'm like, they're cheating. They're cheating. Um, <laughs> my hair is very brown in it. I'm. I. I like it for that. I. T I don't know if that was your hair being brown or I did something weird with the grading. Either way, uh, <laughs> it was fascinating and so obvious to immediately see this friction at the core of ffg but not in a bad way it was it was very evident that even though this pyramid of power had grown and expanded and become more malleable to allow for the company to do all of the things it was trying to do and expand there was still a bottleneck in the form of christian t peterson who yeah, who yeah who did on some level want to have kind of a bit of control over everything. But at the yeah. same time, you know, it's like, it, it was, it was really interesting to me because he was such a personality and had such a drive and a vision and was clearly felt very, clearly felt very strongly about certain things. And some things I agree with, some things I didn't, but I think I, I had a lot of respect for him because he, he, mm -hmm. he knew how he wanted to do things and he could be difficult to work with, but fundamentally he was overseeing stuff that then went on to be really good. And mm -hmm. despite all of the very evident frustrations that everybody had in working with Christian sometimes, they were all frustrations voiced by people who'd worked there for 10 plus years. And, you know, it's, I'm sure that there were many other people, and there's a bit of, you know, survivorship bias here, many other people who just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't deal with him and left. But, uh, but yeah, there was something you wrote in, I think, uh, a design diary where you said, after years of working under a single creative leader, I came to understand their personal preferences, accept their strengths and weaknesses when it came to creative direction. And that, you know, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, of course. Yeah, this is you talking about working with Christian. And, yeah, and yeah. I can see that actually, while sometimes it would be a lot of butting heads, um, if you could gel into it you could have a pretty wonderful time and it sounds like that's what right. you did yeah and i think you know 95 percent of my time uh was good you know it but um you know his manner of of being and and uh presenting his opinion is is uh can be can be pretty abrasive and tough to hear at times he's not he's not gentle um and i, I would not say he's a kind man um, but he, uh, but when you understand him, you know, and like, you can take a breath and be like, okay, like what, what are we really getting at here? Um, you know, you, you can, you can deal with it. And I think in, at the end of the day, like, like you said, like the, the thing that I think 
kept you know bringing me back and like didn't make me like you know you know throw down uh my uh my employee id badge and 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 leave in in frustration uh was the fact that deep down like the things that were driving him were because he cared about the company and he had he had a strong vision for what he wanted and uh and like you said like i have to respect that like i i'd much rather have someone be kind of a jerk at times uh and have like a really strong vision than be super nice and wishy-washy you know like uh, like having that having him there is like hey this is what we're shooting for and this is what he says so we're gonna try to hit this as close as we can and if we can't then i'll try to explain to him why (laughs) uh and, you know, sometimes, you know, he'd listen and be like, okay, I get it. Awesome. Well, let's move forward like that then. And other times he'd be like, nah, it's got to be this. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's go back. Let's do it again. <laughs> but it sounds like it sounds like this experience, you know, what you said about, you know, rather having somebody who is driven and passionate and sometimes blunt and sometimes, you know, rubs people up the wrong way, which is unfortunately yeah. something I think I could relate to as well. Um, sure. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I'm guilty of that myself, certainly on yeah. more than one occasion. The interesting thing for me was things starting to shift around, around 2017, really. And I remember when we came back to finish up the TI documentary, we were flying through the US anyway in a way that now seems alien to me and we just yeah. thought hey let's just pop into Minneapolis and shoot some more interviews and i remember coming and going to the wrong building basically going to the building which had now become Asmodee North America and realizing that yeah. FFG had moved to be next to the FFG game center which in theory i thought you know those things paired together make sense but obviously that was I got the sense that it was odd for lots of people working there because many of the team at FFG who'd worked on things like sales or marketing or anything non-core to the design of the games had basically become Asmodee North America. Yeah. And then FFG as the studio had gone off to cross the road. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely, um, there were definitely people who were not happy with that decision. Um, but the intent behind it was a was a good one. I think it was... Again, Christian just trying to um, put the creative team in a place where they wouldn't have to deal with like the day to day stuff or like hear or like have people like kind of like casually walk over to their cube from mm-hmm. the sales department or something and, you know, complain about whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever yeah. sales related thing that was going on with them. And I can relate to that. Uh, so like um, moving the creative team and kind of isolating them. Um, like was to really kind of foster that community and build build that team um and kind of reshape uh the way that that ffg interacted with asmodee um and uh in the short term like when you guys got there like it was it was pretty fresh uh so there were definitely some people who were you know like i said were just not pleased on both sides like both in the studio and 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 in uh, asmodee because like unless you were a specific person and had badge access, like you couldn't even get in. You couldn't just, you couldn't stop by because no. your badge didn't work at the door. Um, but of course, like everyone at the studio could go into the Asmodee side uh, just fine. I didn't um, know that. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely changed the relationship. And I think ultimately like it, it really, uh, it, it put those interactions with Asmodee into the hands of just a handful of people but really like narrowing it so that 
if ever if ever anything needed to go across the parking lot, then it would be like you know, have a meeting in my office, talk about the thing, and be like, okay, I'll, I'll walk across there and I'll talk to that person for you. Um, so uh, so yeah, so it, def- it definitely changed the way that the studio uh, culture was, which I think ultimately the studio culture I think really benefited from it a lot. Um, mm. I think like that really gave me the opportunity to uh, help uh, help make it a more friendly, welcoming place where people could like voice their ideas and, and they could be heard in a way that uh, they had not necessarily been heard before. Um, and I think by and large, uh, the, the vibe at the studio was, was good. Uh, but it definitely um, <laughs> defined uh, my day to day in a way that, you know, over time became very difficult. Because like, I, I loved, yeah, I loved working with the studio. I, uh, you know, going across the parking lot and doing all those like tough conversations and, and meetings about the money uh, and various things uh you know it's like every meeting you go over there is kind of like a high stress meeting so yeah, there yeah. are many of them per week yeah i could imagine and also it must have been just fundamentally over a long period you know you talked early in your career going through the phase that i think many of us go through of of not dealing well with criticism and then and then i, I relate particularly yeah. to you being like well people are going to criticize it anyway so i there's not any point in me trying to create something finished and good because i might as well wait until they say what they're going to say and then i'll you know and i've, I've been through right. all that same stuff and you know regretfully right. still find myself falling into that second part from time to time when i'm dealing with people who i don't feel are being respectful of what i'm doing because unfortunately right. you know, we've, we've all got our egos to continually try and bury but i found it interesting that obviously you know you did develop this very successful relationship with the way you worked with christian in terms of him having kind of this creative overlead oversight and then you mm-hmm. working and having a back and forth with him and understanding um what he wanted but also understanding the points that needed you needed to fight back on to get it right even though you had that professional relationship and it worked really well it must have been different and strange to then have a relationship whereby you were having the same interactions with him but not about creative decisions right and i think for the in a lot of ways he kind of stepped back from a lot of that and kind of let me like do let other people do their things uh and especially in those last couple of years like most of his time was spent dealing with like the asmodee you know mothership uh in in europe uh, in france and uh whenever he'd have the opportunity to meet with me or um you know talk about anything studio related i felt like he was like oh this is nice (laughs) this this is fun Uh, (laughs) i'm having a good time now uh so like it it really it really did like especially like the last like year and a half like it it really before he um before he left because he you know he he left about a year before i did yeah Um, yeah and uh he definitely kind of like eased off and uh and was you know like less and less involved allowing people to you know get used to what life may be like uh without him there mm-hmm. um but yeah like i i think where it really changed is like i think a lot of my interactions when i was interacting with asmodee you know weren't necessarily with christian like i right. he he would get involved every now and again but only if there was like some huge fire or or thing he perceived as a massive problem but for the most part he just kind of let me do my thing um which i really appreciated and it was only kind of like that that maybe that first like it was almost really that first year before i became head of studio where it was kind of this like 
like slow ramp up to that level of responsibility yeah, for me yeah. where he was a little bit more involved but like almost right away when i when i took over he uh kind of just let me run with it um and only check in with me on from from time to time but yeah it's uh like watching him shift his focus from uh and this is you know this is you know purely my my perception um but i felt like he was really shifting his focus away from the thing that he loved the most which yeah. was ffg in the studio and the creation um and focusing it more on this global business and trying to set up not only ffg for the future for when after he would left so that he felt like it was in a safe place but also try to nudge the ship of asmodee to align with his vision for what he thought it should be before before he took off and he spent a lot of time doing that i mean that's that's a fascinating you know uh for uh, an empire that has been slowly built by one man around him with uh yeah uh, to then have to try and turn his eye and push a gigantic cruise ship halfway across the world <laughs> to get it to go the direction yeah. that he thought i i i mean he was a powerful man but i i don't know how i mean i don't know how well he he got on with that i guess i guess people who work with him like yourself will, will have more of a sense of that as the years go on yeah i think you know time will tell i guess but uh, in the short yeah. term i would say mm, not so much i mean i would yeah <laughs> i i'd say it's uh, it's been fascinating as an outsider you know it's it's interesting and prior to having to this chat i was i was saying uh, you know, that actually, it's it's an odd one in the fact that Asmodee, I don't think you require anybody who worked at Asmodee who's left to now talk about the fact that Asmodee over the past few years has been a strange thing to watch because I think it's just, it's evident to anybody. Um, I think our expectations really when, when Asmodee began hoovering up huge amounts of studios and um, kind of just bundling together something that it looked like they might be able to sell, I was actually one of the less cynical people in the industry about it I, I looked at it from the perspective of well you know what actually there's a huge amount of really exciting games within this selection if they can package this up in a way that basically just nudges hasbro gently into the bin where arguably a lot of their <laughs> stuff belongs then that would be great like you know if we if we then have a situation where 10 20 years from from that point rather than monopoly being the go-to game that has a thousand different variants it is you know pandemic or ticket mm -hmm. to ride that would be cool. I'd be happy with that. That they would mm -hmm. be better gateway games for the industry, um, and I, I think I've just been surprised, really, by the way things have shifted around. And and it's it's been a little a little rudderless, and and fewer games coming out than expected. And actually, um, whilst actually the, the the production quality of stuff has continued, the bar of the visible has continued. You know, we're still seeing these games coming out that look and feel the part some of that magic that may have been the result of having you know uh, autocracy is too strong a word but having a pipeline which had <laughs> uh -huh. people a few people at the top who really cared and who were you know yourself being one of them who really were hammering things through to get them right that felt like uh, that feels like a part of the puzzle that is, is slipped out of place and christian left in 2018 and when i talked to him in in February of 2017 was the last time over in his office on the Asmodee side of the parking lot. Mm -hmm. He did seem faintly melancholic about... He seemed very proud of what he'd done and it seemed very evident at the time he was talking about his work on TI. Like a kind of proud father talking about a son that had grown up and left, left home, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he was, you know, he was excited to have his new challenges, but 
you know, it was it was an end of an era for him. What was the situation like after Christian left? It was a uh, it was a gradual transition. Like that 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 year leading up to him leaving, um, he uh, he was really kind of stepping back. You know, and it was kind of there as like a counselor if you needed him. But uh, like I said, he was kind of just letting everyone do their thing, and he would only jump in if he if he recognized some kind of big emergency. Um, but yeah, after he left, and then the you know the months leading up to him leaving like i was i was actually feeling really good i was really excited uh to be able to you know take ffg forward and try to you know move it uh bring it into the future really and you know try to explore some some different things or different ideas that i had and uh, i felt like i had support um from the asmay north america side on uh on a lot of that stuff and um things seem to be moving forward in a, in a really great way, uh, in the, in those, I think like the months leading up to the end of the year. And then, you know, those first couple months of, uh, of 2019, I was, I was pumped. Like I was super excited and, uh, I was, you know, again, like just incredibly honored that he'd, you know, leave FFG in my care. And, uh, he, he gave me a, uh, a signed, a uh, copy of the Twilight Imperium deluxe rulebook, uh, which with a nice, a nice note, you know, saying that he he felt like he was leaving it, he, he couldn't imagine leaving it in better hands. And I thought you were going to say the role playing game there, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, he he I think he, he destroyed as many of them of that, as he could. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he you know there if he had any more he'd yeah, he'd throw them away. Um, but. Uh, but you know that I mean that means a lot. You know, having you know knowing him as well as I do, and um, you know working with him for as long as I have, and and knowing how much that company means to him, yeah, it was huge to get that from him. And uh, I think it was it was really nice. I mean, he didn't have to do that for me. It's like a nice little nice gesture, and it was awesome. Um, so yeah, I was feeling really positive, and uh, and yeah, and and it was only like a couple months, you know, into 2019 when uh, when reality set in honestly and and it became clear to me you know just how much of a influence chris was on the trajectory of asmodee and right. how hard he worked to try to maintain the integrity of ffg as he envisioned it and tried to put creativity at the forefront um and innovation at the forefront uh, as opposed to you know, ticking numbers off of a box on a sales chart or something. Um, you know, he, he cared about sales too, don't get me wrong. But I think Twilight Imperium is a really great example of, I feel, the kind of thing that makes games great, right? It, Twilight Imperium wasn't made by a company who was like, hey, we want a game that does this. It, you know, it's a 4X game. It does this thing. You can compare it to this other thing in the marketplace, and that does really well. And mm -hmm. you know, we're going to make it sci-fi. You know, people like sci-fi. You know, like it didn't work like that. You know, he had this idea to do this cool thing. You know, kind of like based on you know Masters of Orion. You know, it's not like it was like a completely like original game concept, but the doing it in the way that he did, um, and being like super inspired to create this awesome thing that then you know that first edition of ti looks like crap uh it it's 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 like all these little you know chits and like god bless the cover artist it's not awesome i'm sure they tried their best 
but none of that mattered because yeah. you could feel the, the passion in it, right? You could get into the experience because you could you could feel how much he cared about it. That is what made it successful, not because it ticked off boxes and uh and you know spoke to X market or whatever demographic or what have you. Yeah. And I feel like he, you know, he he knew that and and continued to, you know, try to make games that that kind of tried to capture that same magic. And you know, FFG we had our we had our fair share of of flops. It's not like they were all amazing, but we had a lot of really really good ones and they, and I think they started because people were passionate about an idea and then yeah. Chris recognized that that idea was good and got behind it and then we then we made it into a thing. Um, and then he was passionate about it. And then that passion then informed everyone else under him and, and really drove, uh, drove the course of the business. And then, you know, when he left and I have a fair amount of like, uh, sway at Asbury North America, but I, <laughs> when it comes to like the level of power that the, <laughs> this head of the FFG studio has at, uh, Asmodee proper, eh, mm, not so yeah. much, you know, so, uh, you know, so while I also might care and recognize those things, it doesn't mean much if you don't have the support of the, of the larger company and they don't yeah. believe in that direction. Right. That's, yeah. And that's, that's not what Asmodee is about. I mean, I remember, uh, back when I was just getting into the video games industry being kind of appalled, but amazed at the number of anecdotes I would hear from people repeatedly. The first time I thought it was a one-off, but then it's like, no, this is a consistent thing that people would be pitching games and people would say, we love the idea of this game, but because it's a game that mashes up this genre with this genre and this genre, um, no other game has ever done that, which means our marketing projection of sales is zero because we right. have nothing to compare it to. So, <laughs> and so we can't green light it. And you think, but this makes, this doesn't make any sense. And yeah, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, I guess mm -hmm. it's the tricky thing of, of going from a situation where ffg was a bold company that was defining the future um you can't you can't work like that you know you you can't yeah. work based on on projecting previous ideas and you know you look at like nintendo yeah. would be the analogy within the the video game world i would say of, of being right. the people who who try new things and sometimes those yeah. things don't gel and sometimes right. those things you know <laughs> don't work um and like, for example, I think, you know, even Star Wars Destiny was something that I saw it and thought, that's a fun idea. These dice are cool. But for me, it's way too chunky. I didn't like the big plastic stuff. And I thought this is a bit silly. Da, da, da. But, you know, I would have been wrong on that. If I, would, if I looked right. at that six months at a time, I'd be like, people will probably buy this because it's Star Wars, but I don't think it's going to be a big deal. And that went on yeah. to be a huge success again. Yeah. But as you say, there were things that didn't work, things that flopped. But it's that prospect of trying and, and exploring. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. Sounds like you were already not relishing the conversations across the road where you had to go and be the spearhead of, of the company in terms of getting things through, but then to discover yeah. that actually across the road without you really realizing it, um, Christian Peterson was holding back a bit of a tsunami. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's very, that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, I was, yeah, I was, I was just going to, my, my question towards this point was going to be what, you know, what happened that there's this, obviously this period in July, 2019, Corey stays within Asmodee but goes on to do something different. Had you leaving December 2019 and in March 2020, Brad Andres, it felt like a lot of new talent coming into the studio, a lot of new people coming to the studio. No doubt that a lot of these people have a lot of, you know, a lot of potential, a lot of skill already. Mm -hmm. But um, 
to see so many of the names of people um, and more I'm sure that I wasn't as aware of who the people right. who we knew at the studio and saw at the studio leaving in such a, a fast quantity. I think the weird thing for me was the fact that when you left FFG, there was a, a you know blog post of you saying goodbye and talking about your history there. Um, and then when Corey moved on, it was sort of a piece about a retrospective of his time at the studio, but nothing about him directly leaving. It was sort of a quieter affair. Mm-hmm. And actually, I could not for life of me even work out who's in charge of FFG now. There's, there was, there, as far as I could tell in terms of communications, that's the last time there's been any communications about anybody leaving the studio. Brad mentioned it as part of a video series about Keyforge. There was no official post on the site, despite the fact that, you know, Brad had done a lot of instrumental work over the years on a lot of very popular uh, franchises. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, there seemed to be a degree of this weird radio silence from the studio that I, I found odd. So, you know, was it just this this shift? It was this, did anything particularly happen that you could talk about? And if you can't, that's fine. Well, I think it was just a gradual thing, right? And I think like my, uh, and it's really, it really is just how I process things, I think is really was what was what was at issue is like, I cared a lot about both the people and the company. Um, so like, I really cared about, you know, trying to, I felt it was like kind of like my, my job to, to protect the studio from, <laughs> from whatever, you know, nonsense was happening at Asmodee. So they don't have to think about it. Um, but I took a lot of that stuff on myself and it was, uh, it was just really stressful and um and i wasn't sleeping well and my wife was like is this worth it yeah it's tough to come to the realization you know after i was so excited you know and it was really like yeah i didn't like get into ffg thinking like one day i'm gonna be running this place like (laughs) it never in my wildest dreams that i think that would be possible um but then when i had the opportunity i was like well of course i'm gonna take this opportunity like who who would turn this down? Yeah. Um, so, you know, going from that moment when, you know, having coffee with, with Chris, when he like dropped that on me, he's like, what do you think about running the studio? I said, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, kind of like really, again, just yeah. blown away. And, you know, I got, I remember calling my wife immediately afterwards and like saying, Hey, Chris asked me if I'd be interested in being, if I wanted to run the studio. She's like, what'd you say? I was like, I said, I told him I'd think about it. She's like, <laughs> so you didn't say no. I was like, well, I, I, I got to think about it, right? Um, but anyway, uh, so, so you know, going from that to, uh, like, it dawning on me that it was unsustainable, you know, yeah. for me to, to stay there, uh, was a, it was very tough. Uh, it took a lot for me to come to that realization and then to act on it. It was really the culmination, a lot of things, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, corporate nonsense stuff that to me is now, you know, ancient history and a distant memory that I, I, I can't even really recall uh, all the things that seemed so important and and uh, and dire at the time. Yeah, I've, yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, really, I just got to a point where it was just it was just too much. And mm. um, and I, I wasn't I wasn't doing the things that I enjoyed about working at ffg you know it wasn't like i was i was doing that every once in a while you know i'd have like we were working on descent third edition you know when i left um that we were almost pretty much almost done with uh with the physical components of that and like we're you know essentially going into play testing and it was really cool to work on that project and like that was kind of like my first like thing that was 
you know, not necessarily on the schedule when I came on, I was like, Hey, we're doing this and this is how we're doing it. And like, I was really excited about the vision for it. So like working on that was fun, but that was like an hour every two weeks, mm. you know, or whatever, you know? Yeah. It, and then, you know, the vast majority of my time was like preparing to talk to, uh, you know, Asmodee big week guys and, you know, essentially defend why ffg is the way it is why it's as big as it is like why we're making what we're making mm. why is this game worth doing like stuff like that like you were saying like those analytics of of doing video games um definitely trying to apply that same methodology to making board games at a company that like i said it like it was never really about that um no it was just super stressful and again, and again, you know, the, the thing of, you know, you go back in time and say, you know, let, let me know what the sales prospects are like for a handheld console that opens like a clam and has two screens on it and use a stylus. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then you go back and do the, run the same numbers yeah. five years later, you're going to get very, very different stories. So yeah, absolutely, it's kind of useful, but also useless. So I, I appreciate that. And no, I, I can understand it's uh, it sounds like a a gradual cultural shift that was complicated some good stuff though for yeah, anybody yeah, listening yeah. who's either in a career now or at the start of a career or hoping about a career i think two things yeah. that jump out of me is you know never be afraid to admit that your your dream job uh due to circumstances out of your control is untenable and hellish and know when you've got to step away from it and also i love yeah. the fact that you know somebody who comes up to a show with a portfolio and you're like nah nah you know no not today may well go on to be the person who is in control of you know the most beloved company within the industry. <laughs> so, you know, whether it's you and you need to keep keep your spirits up or someone else who needs to be polite to people who show them things, it's uh, it's always worth remembering. But, I yeah. mean, let's talk now about what's next. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, without having to get into any of the weeds, I'm sure there were a great deal of frustrations about the nature of the company that you were a part of and... Um, and things that you would do differently if you had a control over sides of things that were happening on the other side of the parking lot. Mm -hmm. So coming into this with Earthborn Games and having sustainability at the, the heart of that, tell me a little bit about the steps that you came to and how you ended up here. Yeah, okay. So um, when I made the decision to leave uh, FFG, um, I just started asking myself, you know, okay, what, what do I, what do I want to do? Like what, what things are important to me? And, uh, and you know kind of at the at the forefront of it was was creativity you know want, wanting to essentially make something that just because i want to make it <laughs> and i and i think it's cool <laughs> yeah um, yeah it was uh, was the was the first thing that kind of got me going and i started you know getting getting ideas and uh you know imagining what uh what what those things could could be um None of them ended up, those things I thought at the time ended up being what uh, what Earthborn Rangers ultimately has become. Um, but that's all part of the process and it's fun. Yep. Uh, and then I had been thinking, you know, for years and been talking with uh, uh, an another guy at, at Asmode, Michael Hurley, who um, he and I talked a lot about you know, environmental stuff and, you know, like wanting to do more uh, differently. But obviously... Um, where the company is so focused on the bottom line, uh, really difficult to try to change anything regarding the production of the materials, like or the products. Like it's it's a machine, and yeah. the smoother it can run, the happier the accountants are. Thinking of it from that perspective, um, knowing that I could then 
do things differently, uh, being in control of it and thinking of like going with a more of a direct to consumer model as opposed to being part of the the three tiered system of, you know, publisher, distributor, retailer. Not to say that, you know, there may be opportunities to do that as well. Um, mm-hmm. But whatever I'm doing with Earthborn, I, I, those discounts aren't going to be what they're used to. <laughs> so, no, uh, yeah. So if they're into it, they're going to have to be into the mission, um, which is fine. If they're into the mission, that's great. Uh, and then we can work together. If they're like looking for a super low price thing uh, that is made cheaply, then uh, they're going to have to go someplace else. But um, yeah, so essentially thinking of, you know, going direct to consumer and then what that allows for is allows you to have like just a much higher, you know, price per unit cost on your, on your products. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was something that, uh, was really great to see, you know, working with ship theory. Cause I worked, you know, worked with them for, you know, about a year and a half, um, as this, as the studio director, I'm still working with them as like in a consultancy role. Uh, but seeing how that business functioned, which, you know, I think on the surface, you might think, oh, this they're similar to FFG. Like they have these big high production value games and like uh, they're uh, they're super crunchy in a way that, you know, the old FFG titles used to be. There's some similarities there. But when you actually get into the business, like the two could almost be, uh, could, could, couldn't be any more different. Um, especially like starting at chip theory, I think I was like the 14th person you know, so again, kind of like this, the same size-ish mm-hmm. as FFG was when I started there. But the focus of that business is entirely different. Like the mix of that staff is entirely different. Um, there's just so many more people like dedicated to customer service. Interesting. Uh, um, which was really cool. And, you know, there's a reason why people think uh, so highly of Chip Theory's customer service because they care about it <laughs> they invest <laughs> a lot in it so you know what do you know like people like it um so just seeing like what their production was like and since they you know go through kickstarter and then they sell a bunch of stuff on their website they do sell some things into distribution and retail but that is a relatively new thing for them mm-hmm. um but again they don't offer amazing discounts like they just have enough cachet with something like too many bones and cloudspire where they're like oh yeah we don't mind making just a couple dollars on this thing it's just a cool thing to have in a store yeah uh but you know it took them a while to get there but, yeah I bet. Um, since since most of their their stuff is sold direct to consumer like their price per unit costs are crazy they're crazy like I was like, how much does too many bones cost? Like, that's nuts. (laughs) And it really opened my eyes to the possibilities. Like, okay, well, there's really, uh, you know, I'm not going to be making things like they are with like the, like the really heavy weight and, you know, stuff like that. Not not at the beginning. So like, all right, if the sky is the limit in that way, then I feel like doing the, doing board games or car, car games in the instance of Earthborn Rangers, doing that sustainably I know it's going to be more expensive to produce, but if I can absorb more of that cost because it's going mostly direct to consumer, then that's an amazing opportunity to just do it the right way. It was definitely like a gradual process as like it started to dawn on me because like when I was originally thinking of, you know, leaving, like I was I was thinking like, yeah, it'd be great to be able to manufacture domestically like that was in the United States. Um, that's been something that I've been like harping on for, you know, a decade, mm-hmm. uh, essentially since I, you know, started to become more of a leadership role at FFG, it felt really odd to me 
to be manufacturing everything in China, especially, you know, because there there's no option if things go sideways and like kind of like how they are now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like costs are through the roof. Like, uh, you know, shipping costs are crazy. Like container costs are way more expensive. Than hey, and that's, be. and that's partly our fault. Like in the UK, we've got loads of them because like <laughs> our entire, like all of our weirdness with Brexit has meant that, things like get stuck so weirdly yeah. like you know you'd have this smooth system of of boxes being dropped off emptied moved along but now apparently i don't know if it's getting any better but apparently we've just got a lot of chinese metal boxes sitting around at our ports because <laughs> because our change in infrastructure has been useless and people can't get them back so it's like it's sure. like a euro game where someone's playing it badly and someone's going well hang on a minute like why aren't there any of these in the supply? And someone's like, I've still got them all. And yeah. I'm sure it's not yeah. just that, but yeah, the whole system due to the incident in the Panama Canal, uh, this weirdness with Brexit, obviously the pandemic, it's made it mm -hmm. quite clear that actually this long-term reliance on China as, a, as a, the sole producer of the world's everything is yeah. maybe not tenable. It's weird that it took me this long for as a former English major for this to, to, to actually like sink in. But, you know, saying the word sustainably manufactured, like the opposite is unsustainable. It's unsustainable, literally. It, it, it won't last forever. It, and so like my, my thing I was, was, was harping on, you know, like a decade ago is more of like the potential volatility, right? Like there's so much that is out of your control when <laughs> you're getting everything from a, from a country like across the globe, like so many things can go wrong. So like me, it was when I was thinking about it, it was just more like a practical thing. It was like, and it was actually after visiting Games Workshop um, where this really dawned on me. Uh, Cause I visited Games Workshop, only went there once, uh, you know, Games Workshop, we, at FFG, we had the Games Workshop license for many, many years for anyone who doesn't uh, remember that. Uh, it was a really, uh, it was really awesome. Um, you know, I, it's, I grew up uh, loving Games Workshop. A, those are the things that was what got me into gaming. I think uh, really like the first game, like the first game game I played, I think it was like Chaos Marauder. So, uh, so going there was like a was really really cool. And I remember seeing their operation. And at that time, it was like you know, like 2010. FFG's operation was rinky dink by comparison. Mm. Um, they had, you know, and they had their creative studio right next to their manufacturing, which was right across the, the yard from their shipping center, mm -hmm. all completely contained within this tiny little campus in Nottingham, uh, completely in control of everything that they're making from like the quantities to like when it goes out, when those, it was just like, it's a tightly run machine there it's very very impressive i mean they print stuff in china too but the bulk of their stuff is is still printed right there and then shipped immediately from that spot so it's awesome so i was like we should be doing that <laughs> sure like, they they're in control of everything you already had as part of you know um the ffg studio at that time um your fulfillment like sensor basically right. like you you weren't doing the production there but um i remember yeah we went to the office and it's like here's where the people design the games here's some of the meeting rooms and then here's this massive warehouse where we have right all of the games right um, <laughs> exactly. and even even the gigantic printer that printed all of the play mats very slowly but but right. like i was like <laughs> you just make them in this room and like you're like yeah uh, don't stay in this room too much fumes etc but you know <laughs> so i was thinking about like domestic manufacturing a lot so i was like okay well i'd like to manufacture domestically but then it really you know as i just continued to think about it like thinking about like well what more can we do like can we 
can we do everything better uh every every single piece along the way um and uh yeah and that eventually just kind of came to this idea of sustainability number one and making that the the foundational pillar of the of the company um or one of them you know one of them's the one of them's the sustainability and the other other part is like the types of stories that that earthborn games will tell the worlds that you'll experience trying to explore things that aren't really touched on as much uh as i think they could be in uh in tabletop again i think because for lots of reasons but mm-hmm. i think you know a lot of people are like hey i want to make a board game we want people like fantasy and dragons let's do that which there's a lot of practical reasons for doing that it's way easier but that also doesn't interest me you know i i i like to do things that are that are different and try to explore new settings and create stories that are fresh um so that's the goal uh those those two things so like the sustainability and also trying to create a more sustainable ecosystem for your mind when you're playing <laughs> so you <laughs> well, can no, have fun and adventure yeah, without nice. without wallowing in misery uh, I, mean, I think that'd be great i think that's a key thing as well you know it's as all of these things happen for me the the entire history of ffg and um you know the future of what you're going on to do is really interesting to me personally having worked for most of my career for the first you know 10 15 years of my career within the video games industry and seeing where it was at where it'd been and in many regards the, the areas in which it was stuck and the, the holes in which it, it found itself just looping in and right. inevitably that's why i left that industry and started to come over into this space and because it was interesting and there were still interesting things happening and realizing as Asmodee grew and became this thing and as the industry grew and as we grew I, I i felt very strongly that yeah this is a this is a point which the, the progress of this industry needs to be quite careful otherwise it will end up just trapped in a in a cycle of making the same things over and over again um and maybe not also in a fashion which would culturally be interesting or positive you know mm-hmm. so um it's 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 interesting to hear that you seem to be on a similar pattern. And I think it's also interesting that the point you make that unsustainable is the opposite of sustainability. And whenever <laughs> people talk about sustainability, um, people always think, oh yeah, you know, save the world. Da, da, da. And it's like, no, it's not even that. It's just the fact that like, you know, are you going to be able to actually reliably get your product in six months? Or is it going to yeah, be exactly. stuck in another country for a year? You know, like it's not about like an alternative option. It is just about, trying to create something that actually reliably will work for the future and i think it it raises some really interesting questions for for me and the rest of the team that i think we're going to have to be dwelling on in the coming years and the fact that you know we've traditionally had a rule that we've mostly kept to that we don't cover stuff that's that's kickstarter based um Mm. because of the idea of it being this you know unknown quantities we don't know if the game is going to be good we don't know if it's going to ship and all these questions that are that are unclear we don't know if the product that we see is going to be the product other people will get and those things are all still true but at the same time increasingly realizing that actually the environmental costs and the risks involved of of, and the time and the the money involved of getting things across from one country to another and then having them warehoused and then having them sent in lorries to shops all of the considerations that come into this and the costs that come into this do limit the form factor of what you can do and actually it's, it's fascinating to hear you saying that actually you know what this allows you to do is by cutting out all these overheads is to make things in a different way and that's mm-hmm. fascinating and i think it's it's going to have to be um 
something that we continue to work try and develop <laughs> try and develop systems around to to work alongside things like this because it does seem that yeah the the future of sustainability is probably still going to be um direct to consumer um but at the same time so is all of the boxes of things that have way too many bits of plastic and can frankly go into an eternal bin so tell me a bit about the ideas in terms of what stories you want to be telling and what sort of, what, what you want to be doing differently specifically if you're able to with regards to earthborn rangers yeah earthborn rangers uh came out of me like the the setting for earthborn rangers came out of me thinking about um just science fiction in general and uh i i, I talked about this a little bit on the on the man versus meeple appearance i did um but this idea that you know a lot of science fiction be those be that in in novels or in uh, in television you can see the technology then expressed in modern day um in a way that is kind of eerie where it's like okay did did you have that idea because you read that in science fiction or are we are we like as a society as a people as a world like are we helping to make those things come to life because of mm. the energy we're putting behind them and i was playing i think i was either playing fallout 76 or fallout 4 um both games that are, i enjoy i'm not i'm a big fallout 76 apologist i i love that <laughs> i really enjoyed that game i had a lot of fun with that game even when it was all messed up i i thought it was really great and i like the kind of like the solitude of those games and like walking around and, and enjoying the space but i really kind of caught myself one day like walking around i'm like man this place is messed up like why do i want to spend so much time here like what mm -hmm. what am i what am i doing and why am i spending my time in this kind of nightmare world where uh everything's irradiated and and awful um and i think that's part of why i like fallout 76 uh so much is because there are more kind of like you know green space dull dull brown to red spaces uh <laughs> that you can walk around in uh with with trees and plants and stuff i started to think about you know are we helping to create this as our future by putting so much creative energy into these worlds and how many worlds not only like imagine the earth as a trash heap in the future mm -hmm. but they all like essentially vilify humanity it, it's all our fault and there's nothing we can do and this belief that the the death of the earth is inevitable and mm -hmm. it's all our fault is pervasive even in games like like Horizon Zero Dawn, which I like, I, I feel like is the probably the thing that's kind of like closest aesthetically to what Earthborn Range, Rangers in. Even in that game, like humanity's wiped out. Uh, spoilers if you haven't played Horizon <laughs> Zero Dawn, everyone's a clone. Um, but uh, you know where things go so horribly, humanity gets wiped out, and uh, you know we essentially screw things up. Um, so I started thinking, well, what if instead of imagining a future where we screw stuff up and it's inevitable, what if we imagine a future where we figure stuff out and things are actually good? That'd be nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that's the thing. <laughs> and I guess this is, you know, uh, an issue I talked about a bunch when I was doing video game stuff more was the fact that I grew up when I grew up Cyberpunk 2020, the role playing game was the most exciting thing because it was it was a critique of of the 80s and the time, you know, it was critique of the world at that point and the future that it might lead to. 
Um, yeah. But we weren't anywhere near it. And a lot of the ideas it had, you know, did not come to to be. But many of them did. And it's because it was it was sci-fi in terms of predicting. It was kind of sci-fi with a warning, really. Of like, this right. is this is the way the world is going to go. But when it came to them making a new version of this world now, it's like, this is the, what the world is now. Like, right, exactly. And, and actually, I, I, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's strangely by repeating these, these, um, these stories again and again, it, it's a deeply conservative and kind of regressive view of just saying, well, things can't be any better. This is the way things are going. Like, and there's right. nothing we can do about it. And, yeah. and in a way, like the idea of, uh, you know, when I first fall out, I, I, I'm the opposite of you. You know, I, I, I will not apologize or get involved with any of the modern Fallout stuff. But Fallout 2 for me was hugely important. But I played it as a child at a point where somebody saying, like, you know, humanity has ruined the planet and it was inevitable because war never changes right. was revolutionary to a 12-year-old who shouldn't have been playing a game that was rated for much older. But, that's you know, that's because I hadn't heard those ideas expressed. And I think, I think yeah, you're right yeah. that now we got to a point where looking at rising sea levels and all these issues and having the richest people on the planet being like well i guess i'm going to spend all this money trying to convert a dust planet into something rather than tweaking this perfect planet we already have is Mm -hmm. there clearly is a pervasive message soaking in that 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 there is no hope for right for the future exactly exactly and i feel like that that feeds people like feeling like well it doesn't matter what i do because uh, because it's inevitable, like you said. So with Rangers, it kind of started there. Like, okay, well, let's imagine, like in the near future, we come together as a planet and we we direct all of our energy toward undoing the damage that we've done, um, and try to try to save it, and try to heal it. Uh, you know, imagining the world as it is, as a living, as a living being, <laughs> which I think. When you think about the world as a living being, as opposed to like a giant pile of resources that one can exploit, it definitely changes your perspective. So when I sat down to start working with Sam, uh, Sam Gregor Stewart, who was uh, uh, laid off by Asmodee, so I uh, reached out to him immediately and snatched him up and started working <laughs> with him because uh, he's awesome. When we sat down to work, like that was kind of that was where we began. It was like, okay, like let's create this chronology that leads into the far future. And when I say far future, it's not the uh, the Warhammer 40k far future. Um, there's another grim future for you. Uh, <laughs> it's not not like 40,000 years in the future. It's about 2,500 years in the future. So we're like, okay, well we're gonna set it set it here. Uh, how do we get from there to here? So we had this idea of like, okay, let's have humanity come together in the, you know, uh, in the late 2100s, or early 2200s, and then band together to make all these like projects, essentially like on their own, uh, we call them like generational projects that, uh, you know, were passed down through families, through generations, because they were so big. I love that idea of like those, like in Europe, you know, they have those like giant churches and things and like awesome monuments that you start, but you know that you're not going to be there to see the end of it. Um, and that also creates some really, some really cool like narrative things that we're going to be playing with. But we create this, so everyone in the world goes and creates these little pockets of generational projects. They all express themselves differently um, based on their different, uh, the different people behind them and the different regions and cultures who make them. Uh, but in the end, they work and, uh, and the earth is healed. But then because of the things that were done to, to heal the earth, 
there's some pretty like wild sci-fi stuff that we've done because wild sci-fi stuff is fun yeah um, the consequences of that work like have left the earth changed so it's healed but it's different um and it's a little bit it's more fantastical with some strange creatures and you know mysterious ancient monuments and you know all sorts of stuff what we were trying to imagine then is okay like say you know 2500 years in the future the people of the world have grown up like generation to generation like knowing that we must care for the earth like that there's there's nothing for it like above all else we have to make sure that our home is is providing for us and it's taken taken care of and over you know centuries of that being ingrained in you how differently would you behave and what things would matter to you as a culture so um so those are the things that like so trying to put yourself in that space is a really challenging exercise uh, but I think it's a really valuable one. Like I've found, like, especially like working on this during 2020, mm -hmm. um, you know, where there's so many, especially in the States and especially in Minneapolis, you know, where there's so many things kind of pointing to like, oh, see, this is, this is why humanity sucks um, to try to push that down. It's like, it's not, it's, that's not, that's not our full story. Like there's more to us than that and trying to imagine us as better and that we can become better was really empowering and felt really, it feels really good to imagine yourself in that space and to try to like bring that space to life. Um, but it's not like during that process, I didn't have like dark thoughts. Yeah, I got to kind of, but you have to, but I want to try to quiet those. So I don't end up doing what we just described essentially like reverting to those old stories. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of at the at the heart of of Rangers and with with Rangers we're really focusing on a on a individual culture, a culture that lives in one of my favorite places in, in the world, which is the the uh, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. I love going out there with my family. I love hiking the mountains. It's super inspiring um and that's where I've gotten a lot of my ideas that I've uh, in the past of, you know, that I'm essentially expressing through Earthborn Rangers. But um, we're focusing on this very small community uh, of, of people, this very small, this, this, this singular culture and what their beliefs are and how they behave and how they interact with their, with their neighbors. And then, you know, if, if, it, if it takes off and people love the setting, then, you know, obviously we'll explore more and we'll, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll widen it out. Um, but like trying to imagine like, okay, like, you know, this is the mid, this is essentially like the Midwest. This is where I live. Uh, so imagining like, how the people here could then turn into those people yeah um it was really fun uh and like then imagining the things that are important to them is really fun so like the things that are expressed in that game are like trying to live within balance um and also compassion and knowing that uh that we can't as a species we we, we can't survive on our own we're all part of one giant family like we are yeah. all related we are we are literally on this planet together <laughs> this is our home we all share we it. have the community yeah exactly um that so you you value those things and you value human life and you value like uh the you value the connections that you have and the, the spirit of cooperation that goes into it so like those are the kind of the foundational aspects of the setting well that, i mean it sounds it sounds fascinating to me that rather than having this high fantasy 
concept of saying, you know, the Quasnar are from Quesnos 4 and they have traveled millions. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's an envision of, of an area and a place that you love in the world and imagining what the future might be like if the people there and the types of people there that you know were the best versions of themselves and, and were able to yeah. achieve those things. That sounds really deeply quite fascinating. And I mean, also, you know, I've got to say, like, I think that these things, um, I, you know, I wish you all the best with the project because I think these things do matter um, on, a, on a small scale. It's uh, going back again, unexpectedly, to the second time in this interview to the Nintendo DS. Uh, there was a game uh, <laughs> called Chibi Robo Park Patrol, which I played, where you play a little robot whose job it is to go around and keep a park tidy. And you spend a lot of time just throwing away rubbish and recycling rubbish when possible. And yeah. it has a theme of the game of just constantly finding toys who've been thrown away who were horrible and ugly and tidying them up, cleaning them up, fixing them and giving them a new home. And that game had a profound effect on me in that it was the first thing as an arguably quite dim young adult actually got me to start recycling. And I realize now nice. I think it's, it's had a longer effect on that now. Like I've got to the point now where I really despise having to ever buy new things. And I've this year particularly, I think, Again, being influenced by the fact that so much of the early reaction to this pandemic was rooted in xenophobia and people determining where in the world it came from and whose fault mm -hmm. it was that it's evolved. And reality is it's to do with encroaching, uh, you know, smashing together lots of different types of environments together by knocking down too many forests, by expanding factories, by pushing species together in a way that causes, uh, you know, these cross mutations of viruses that then pass on to humans. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's telling that so many of our stories about how the world ends um, are both fatalistic and inevitable, but also immediate. It's always a, a nuclear bomb. Everything's changed click. When in reality, it's a slow slide and we're seeing it right now. Um, right. And I feel like that's been the thing that's pushed me over the edge and got me interested in in electronics and mechanics and actually finding myself increasingly, whenever things break in my house now, I take them apart and try and fix them myself if they're out of warranty rather than just chucking them in the bin and getting another one and That's i think a i think a lot of that comes from from playing a tiny stupid robot on a nintendo ds um many years ago so uh yeah and i think you know like there are games that kind of like trade in these types of th themes right but they're they're a very specific type of game generally speaking and i i feel like that's where i uh that's where I feel like there's more work to do because the games that we that we take the time to tell like deep narratives it's like oh it's just dark and gritty or like yep. it's, you know it's whatever it, it and that feels like and, and I see that a lot in popular media too it's like how much can we shock you with how awful these people are yeah and I just I'm kind of bored with it um and I feel <laughs> yeah. like there's there's room to tell exciting adventure stories you know like that you'd come to expect from you know like a like an ffg of old that uh you know don't necessarily you know have to do with uh with that kind of grim vision for a fantasy setting or for a future yeah it doesn't have to be a family-friendly cooperative simple card drafting. Right. i don't know like yeah, yeah. Ex exactly yeah. yeah there are people out there who you know are not being served by that style of, of narrative you know what i mean who like who look mm -hmm. at something like an arkham horror just like yeah you know that just kind of looks gross um <laughs> and you know which is a bummer because those are fun games but uh uh i feel like that there's more can... that can be done yeah, there's more that can be done. We can we can make something that is uh, that's just that's just different and tells a different story, but still has that level of excitement and adventure that that people who like that style of game um, 
come to expect and enjoy. Fantastic. Well, I think that just about wraps us up, really. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Earthborn Rangers, you can go to is it earthborn.com? It's earthborngames.com, and Earthborn has an E at the end of it. Yeah, it's good. It's, I like putting E's at the end of things. <laughs> yes, it's, it's fun. fun. So it's, we, are, we are born by the Earth, is that... Uh, Very nice. And you've got a Kickstarter for the game coming up pretty soon, right? We've said summer 2021. Uh, that is uh, very intentional because we don't know the specific dates yet. With weather like it is here... I don't know when summer is going to be or when it was. <laughs> I think summer in the UK happened last month and we're done with it now. But uh, yeah, it, will, it will begin no later than September 21st. Okay, <laughs> stay cool. tuned. We'll, we'll, we'll announce it as soon as we have those dates firmed up. Well, exciting. Thanks so much for coming on to talk about uh, the history of a company we all know and hold or in high regard over the years. And uh, yeah, about what's coming next. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Matt. It was a lot of fun. 